You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An API bug may have exposed credit ratings. A study offers advice for the new anti-ransomware task force emerging in the U.S. and elsewhere. Israelis warned to keep their cyber guard up on Quds Day next week. Russia says it would spot any U.S. cyber attack before it hit. The U.S. Congress considers establishing surge cyber response capability. Dinah Davis from Arctic Wolf has tips on preventing RDP attacks. Rick Howard speaks with Rahan Jalil from Security on GDPR. And NSA offers advice for security OT networks. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 29th, 2021. Krebs on Security says that Experian has patched an API flaw in a partner website that exposed individuals' credit ratings. The researcher believes the flaw may persist unaddressed in other partners' APIs. The story is still developing it. We'll be following it as it does. IBM reviews the history and activity of the R-Evil ransomware gang, also known as Sodinukibi, a new breed mob as interested in stealing information as it is in encrypting it. The report is timely given the attention ransomware is currently receiving from law enforcement organizations. As the U.S. Department of Justice organizes its anti-ransomware task force, a report by the Institute for Security and Technology offers 48 recommendations. Prominent among them are calls for close international regulation of cryptocurrencies and assistance for victims who refuse to pay ransom. The beginning of wisdom concerning ransomware, the report argues, is to recognize that it's overwhelmingly a financially motivated crime— And as long as the profits outweigh the risks, attacks will continue. So governments and the private sector should work to disrupt the criminal business model and make sure crime doesn't pay. A variety of actions should be taken, it says, to disrupt payment systems and to make ransomware attacks less profitable, to disrupt the infrastructure used to facilitate attacks, and disrupt ransomware actors themselves through criminal prosecution and other tactics. The altcoin trading and remittance system is seen as a key enabler of ransomware. While no one should think that cryptocurrencies are inherently nefarious, they're not, and have many benign uses, they should, the report argues, be regulated. The regulation should start with their being held to existing standards. Governments should require cryptocurrency exchanges, crypto kiosks, and over-the-counter trading desks to comply with existing laws. 
The victim assistance the report proposes would occur in several ways. The financial aspects would be handled, the recommendations propose, by establishing a ransomware response fund that would help those victims who refuse to pay the hoods. The report says, If such funding were available for ransomware victims, then cost would play a smaller role in an organization's decision about whether to pay the ransom. As an incentive to invest in cybersecurity, governments could consider requiring the organization to cover some portion of the ransom as a deductible. End quote. May 7th is Quds Day, Jerusalem Day, observed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. By coincidence, this year it falls near Israel's own Jerusalem Day, May 10th, which commemorates Israel's unification of the city during the Six-Day War. The Times of Israel reports that Israel's National Cyber Directorate has issued an alert to expect Iran-associated cyber attacks in connection with the observances. The Directorate expects any cyber attacks this year to be more ambitious than the customary website defacements. The difficulty of mopping up after the compromise of Microsoft Exchange Server, presumably by Chinese intelligence services, and especially after the compromise and exploitation of the SolarWinds supply chain, presumably by Russia's SVR, has prompted discussions in the U.S. Congress and elsewhere about preparing a surge capacity to deal with future incidents. Bipartisan sentiment has therefore grown in the U.S. Congress for establishing a cyber reserve that could surge for incident response. Some proposals call for more cyber capability going into the National Guard. The Guard, it should be noted, already has cyber units. Another proposal, Defense News reports, would pilot a civilian cybersecurity reserve that could be called up to augment both Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security organizations during an emergency. It would be composed of former federal civilians and military veterans with relevant training. Versions of the bill establishing a pilot civilian cybersecurity reserve have been introduced in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. It's not just response and remediation, of course, that could have been under discussion in the U.S. since the SolarWinds incident, but also more active measures, with various rumblings out of Washington concerning the possibility of deterrence and, more directly, retaliation. Are the Russians ready for it? Moscow says they are. The Russian news service Interfax quotes senior Russian official Andrei Krutskik to the effect that it would be technologically impossible for the U.S. to mount an undetectable cyber attack in retaliation for Russia's solar winds campaign, which Russia doesn't admit it conducted. It's all stupidity, Krutskik said. Anything the Americans might try, Russia will surely see coming. Maybe, but on the other hand... The Americans didn't really see Holiday Bear come snuffling up until it was too late. The SolarWinds incident also raised concerns about the degree to which operational technology might have been compromised, either actually or potentially. NSA has taken note. This morning, the U.S. National Security Agency released a cybersecurity advisory covering ways of stopping malicious activity against connected operational technology, that is, OT networks. The agency gives as its motivation for the advisory a recent shift in adversary attacks. Quote, Recent adversarial exploitation of IT management software and its supply chain has resulted in publicly documented impacts across the U.S. government and the defense industrial base. Malicious cyber activities directed at OT also continue to threaten these networks. 
So, Cozy Bear, Fort Meade is looking at you. Essentially, an essay advocates a rigorous cost-risk-benefit analysis of any connectivity. At its highest level, the advisory recommends a two-step process. First, determine whether the cost of connecting OT networks to IT networks, and especially the cost of increased risk, is worth the benefits it might bring, such as greater efficiency, reduced labor costs, and so on. This cost-versus-risk-versus-benefit analysis should take it as a guiding assumption, NSA says, that a standalone, unconnected, islanded OT system is safer from outside threats than one connected to an enterprise IT system with external connectivity, no matter how secure the outside connections are thought to be. Second, should you decide in favor of connecting IT and OT networks, systematically improve the cybersecurity of those networks, with particular attention to managing, monitoring, and baselining the systems. The advice isn't surprising, but it's brief and to the point, worth attending to by organizations grappling with securing their operational technology. The days are long gone when they could count on a nice, safe default air gap. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. The CyberWire's own CSO, Rick Howard, continues his series of conversations with experts about cyber threat intelligence. Here's Rick. GDPR, or the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, has been on the legal books since January 2012, but there is still a lot of industry confusion about what it is and how you might go about complying with it. Rehan Jalil is the CEO of Security, spelled with an I, a data privacy, security, and governance company. I asked him to explain what GDPR is. GDPR is all tied to how you handle uh, people's personal data and how you collect it with or without their consent, how you store it, how you provide protections around it, People do get the rights 
to either request a copy of the data to understand how much of their personal information is being collected from various different sources. They also get the right to request the companies to go delete this information. GDPR treats personal data as the property uh, of the owner, and they treats data privacy as a human right. That's really the fundamental premise. When they passed the law, there weren't a lot of tools available to help us get a handle on this new requirement. So what do we do? Well, like most self-respecting security professionals, whenever confronted with some new problem to characterize and understand, we broke out the universal tool in everybody's toolbox, the ubiquitous spreadsheet. Initially, companies took the approach of doing manual inventories and asking people across the organization what kind of data you have. Uh, you won't believe initially it was spreadsheets, and you won't believe it was just spreadsheet-like tools, which will simply ask people, hey, what data you have? And they would kind of log it somewhere, and that was the data mapping. And it was certainly early days, and in some ways, frankly, completely useless, because data changes every second, and it flows, and it goes across different systems, across different parts of the organization, and if companies were trying to do this mapping on spreadsheet-equivalent tools, it was certainly a, a recipe of uh, failure in some ways. Of course, things have gotten better. In this world of automation and DevOps and site reliability engineering, technology can help solve this problem uh, too. Now, technologies can actually help to map the requirements to the individual and the residencies and then do a lot of automation on the back end. Uh, to discover the data, figure out the way data should be uh, hosted or not hosted, and then a request comes in to make sure what kind of rights can be given to that individual based on residency and based on you know what regulations in that particular residency. What you see is very rapidly uh, a lot of technologies are evolving to understand where exactly is the data. You can catalog it, and then you can now then provide rights to people on that data are in a much better position if ever there's an audit that happens, you can open up your books and you know, show here, this is methodology, is a tool, and you're going to query, and here's our data, and this is what we're doing. So the chances of fines could be a lot less. But this still feels like a very big problem. With our data scattered across various data islands, like on endpoints, back at headquarters, in our data centers, in hundreds of SaaS applications, in multiple cloud provider networks, and in giant data lakes... Most of us don't know where to start. The good news is that the kind of data we are worried about for GDPR compliance is a small fraction of the data we typically collect day to day. I think you'd really hit it on the head. The important thing is to narrow down to that personal data, discover it, point it out where that data is and catalog it and use that knowledge as your mechanism to give people rights uh, on the data. So be of stout heart, GDPR and all privacy compliance laws can be mastered with a little planning and probably a lot of automation. You've been meaning to get moving on that DevOps project anyway. Automating GDPR compliance might be a good place to start. That's the CyberWire's own Chief Security Officer, Rick Howard. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. 
Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Dinah Davis. She's the VP of R&D at Arctic Wolf. Dinah, great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today about ransomware uh, and some of the things that you've been tracking there. What can you share with us today? Yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot of the time we hear, you know, ransomware comes in from phishing and um, other social engineering vulnerabilities, right? Um, And it does. It absolutely does come in that way. But one that doesn't often get discussed is the Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP. So Remote Desktop is exactly what the name implies. It's an option to remotely control a computer system. And so because of COVID and because everybody's working from home, you know, a lot more ports are open to the Internet than previously there would have been, right? Because they would have been behind company firewalls in their physical networks, right? So Hmm. um, how do attackers use RDP to do a ransomware attack? Basically, they try to um, reverse brute force the the account. So if they see a port is open and they know, you know, who you are, they probably can just try, you know, lots of common passwords like using a dictionary attack on it, right? Or Mm. uh, using credential stuffing, um, given that maybe there was a database of valid usernames and passwords out there, and then they try those. There's also the hybrid brute force, which starts with, like, combinations that would be more specific to you, uh, the person that they're trying to attack, and then go over to a dictionary attack. So we're seeing still like 50% of ransomware attacks are, are from RDP. And what they do is they get in through that port and then they'll install the ransomware in your system because they have remote access to your machine, right? Mm-hmm. So a big thing here is how to prevent this. And it's actually yeah. not hard. Go on. Okay. So uh, to prevent an RDP attack, the best thing to do is if you don't need to use RDP, then just close all the ports and don't use it. And then it's not an attack vector, <laughs> especially closing port 3389. <laughs> slow down here, Dinah. You're getting a little bit ahead of me. I, this is, you don't get too technical. <laughs> just it's shut turning it, it off. Yeah. All right. All right. But Go on. Go on. Let's say you do need to use it as part of your, as part of your job. There's not a way around it. So at the very least, use strong passwords. Uh, mm. Make RDP only available through a corporate VPN. 
right? So it makes it harder for an attacker to get at. Use network level authentication and in, if possible, enable two-factor auth. And still close any external access to port 3389 and use a different port because there's so many bots on the internet that are just going through looking for open port 3389s uh, that that's like one of the simplest things you can do to avoid uh, getting ransomware via RDP. Oh, change it from the default port to something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, good information as always. Dinah Davis, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iman, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.